welcome today. Uh, today we're going to have Dr. Brandon Bronze here. Uh, Brandon is a fellow Texan I recently found out, and so it's a special pleasure for me to, to uh, uh, have him speak. It's going to be a big talk, being from Texas. So. Um, yeah, and, uh, so Brandon did his uh, uh, medical training at University of Texas in Houston. Uh, trained in surgery at Southwestern, did some research there, and went on to do further fellowship at uh, Penn in, in Philadelphia. Um, joined us uh, you know, about a couple years ago, one and a half years ago, and so it's a real pleasure to have him talk on uh, Burns today. All right, thanks, Brian. Great, thanks. Greetings. But, um, full disclosure, um, really, I guess... The reason I'm talking to you about burns is mainly due to my time at Parkland Hospital in Dallas. We had a very large burn center. Um, you know, on July 1st of my intern year, I was the burn doc for the entire northern Texas region along with Oklahoma, which was a little bit of stress on a young intern. Um, we do a lot of burns during residency. I also did some basic science research in burns. Uh, gave a grand rounds last year on burns, and all of a sudden I have become uh, the local burn expert. So just full disclosure, I'm not really actively practicing burns right now, but I try to keep up and uh, really look forward to the patients whenever we have them come in. And I have to mention Dr. Purdue. He was uh, the co-director of the Parkland Burn Unit for 22 years, uh, was unfortunately killed by a drunk driver in 2010 on his way to work. Um, but you know, if you're from Parkland and you're talking about burns, you can't at least have a slide of this man. He was a pretty special guy. Um, and also, just to remind all of you, we're going to talk about burn care, try to make you comfortable with burn care, uh, so you can at least initially assess the patient and start treatment. But really, burn care is so multimodal. There are physical therapists dedicated to uh, burn care. There are pain uh, physicians. There are surgeons. There are nurses. So really, if you've ever worked at a hospital with a burn unit, they're off to the side. They do their own thing. Um, it's really a... It's a special group of people who take care of burn patients, I think. Um, really, these are the stated objectives, uh, basic, simple objectives. But truly, I just think that everybody in this room, as a critical care physician, should be able to logically approach the burn patient, um, at least initiate treatment prior to transfer to a different level of care. So hopefully this will just help review those principles in your mind. If you are in search for uh, some additional reading, this is Dr. Herndon out of Galveston. This is Total Burn Care, uh, essentially the burn Bible. Uh, not a bad book to have on your bookshelf if you're going to be doing some degree of burn care. Um, and then just two quick little history slides. Uh, this was a fire that happened in 1921. Uh, Frank Underhill studied the victims of this fire, and this is where the first inclination that burn shock was going on um, started to happen. And again, that's 1921. And then 1942, uh, this was a very popular nightclub in Boston. Uh, 490 people died when a fire started and everybody tried to go out a revolving door. Basically, bodies piled up on top of one another, um, which is why now you can't have solely a revolving door. You have to, it has to be flanked by doors that open. Um, but everybody ran out. 500 people died. Um, there were 100 severely burned patients. 
uh, Dr. Moore, Francis Moore, he was a 29-year-old resident at MGH under Dr. Cope, who is the Dr. Cope of Cope's diagnosis of the acute abdomen. Um, and the traditional treatment of burn injuries at this time was tannic acid. They would just put tannic acid on the skin, um, let it become leathery. Hopefully that would resist infection, but Dr. Cope wanted to treat these patients like he treated his mice in his burn models, and he put clean sheets on them, et cetera. Um, in short, none of their patients died at MGH, but at Boston City Hospital, they had like 90% mortality, and they basically split the patients. So this was a big fire as far as our understanding of burn care. And again, 1942, not really that long ago. So we'll talk a little bit about the burn wound itself. Um, Pretty standard photo, just to remind you, there are three zones, if you will. Uh, there's a zone of coagulation, so th this is the area that's already necrotic. Um, really not a lot to do, you just want to prevent infection of this area. Uh, this is the zone that's in question, that zone of stasis. Uh, there's still some blood flow, cells are not frankly necrotic. If you do everything right, you may be able to avoid that transition from a superficial burn injury to a full thickness burn injury. And then you have your zone of hyperemia where your cytokines are, you get vasodilation, it's painful, but it's probably gonna go ahead and survive. Um, just to remind you, burns, burns are great because it really creates a model for study of so many different pathophysiologies, especially trauma, because every system is affected. Um, you have a cutaneous injury but you have capillary permeability for the first 24 hours, um, altered hemodynamics, you're hypermetabolic, uh, there's some thought that gut mucosal permeability is up and maybe there's translocation happening, uh, hence there's decreased renal blood flow and immunosuppression. So really it's a, it affects all aspects of the host. And just to kind of hammer that home, this was some work I did in a mouse model back in the day and basically, this is the mouse myocardium, and you can see in the TLR4, if you're familiar, these are HEJ is a TLR4 knockout mice, HEN's the wild type. Uh, you know, you can see elevated levels of TNF-alpha, interleukin-1, beta, IL-6, IL-10. This is, again, in mouse myocardium in the wild type compared to the, uh, <clears throat> to the knockout mouse. And then systemically, you see kind of a similar thing. And, you know, that's not for you to remember, but just to remember that this is a multifactorial injury that's happening. Um, burn wound assessment. This is, in even the most expert of hands, people are only about 70% right with this. For example, the yellow illustrates um, a partial thickness wound, so superficial partial thickness. You can see, well, you'll have to believe me, but you can see some hyperemia. You can see some blood flow. The red arrow is an area of deep partial thickness burn. Uh, in other words, a wound that will require probably operative intervention. Um, again, even in expert hands, they're only about 70% right on predicting this. Whenever you see a burn initially in the emergency department or the trauma resuscitation unit or wherever you are, uh, it's almost impossible to tell what you have unless it's truly obvious. And we'll see some of those. Um, a first degree burn, also an epidermal burn. Just red, painful, it's gonna live. Uh, it doesn't need surgery. It's basically just a really bad sunburn. And I don't have permission to use that, so maybe we can take that off the broadcast. Um, this is a superficial par partial thickness burn. Um, you might 
hear this referred to as second degree. This is the one where you're going to see blisters. It's going to hurt, um, but it will get better. Um, it does not require an operation, and it should not scar. Uh, and this is an example of a patient who probably has uh, that type of injury. You can see the obvious bully, um, which, just for the record, I would leave intact. There's some debate about whether or not you should pop those. Probably leave it intact. Um, and then we have the deep partial thickness burn. So this is where operative intervention comes into play. It's going to be modeled. Um, patients will typically describe it as pressure, not painful. It's kind of hard to determine, though, because if they have an area of deep partial thickness injury, they're probably going to have some superficial partial thickness areas around it. So they're going to hurt. Um, it would heal in three to nine weeks without an operation. It would scar, so this is why typically these patients will come to operation. And here's an example on the hand of, you can just see that mottled white. It just doesn't look healthy. It's, it's approaching leathery, but it's not quite there. Um, and here we have the full thickness or third degree burn. This truly is, um, if you haven't felt one, it's, it's like a piece of leather. Um, it just looks pale. It's hard. Um, it forms an eschar. It definitely requires an operation. Um, this is an example of a patient we actually had here at the Shock Trauma Center. I'll talk to you more about later. But you can see on her abdomen, she has that full thickness, white, uh, just really not pleasant to look at. And that's some silver sulfadiazine on it. Um, just another angle of her <coughs> abdominal wound. Here's another patient. You can see her along the periphery, that white. Just, it just looks insensate. So that's just a full thickness burn that's going to require uh, some intervention in the future. Another picture. Uh, burns are dramatic. You know, whenever you're taking care of them, I, I encourage you to like, look at all these pictures now, get all the drama out of your head, and then you, know, you just approach the patient systematically whenever they come in because people are going to get caught up in the Oh my God, did you see the hand? Yeah, well, we also need IV access and an airway and everything else, so. <laughs> um, and then you'll hear about fourth degree burns. These are typically kind of extenuating circumstances, either an electrical injury, um, an immersion burn in somebody who can't avoid the immersion, or a patient who's unconscious at the time of the burn. Uh, this is an example of a bad electrical injury. You can see extensive soft tissue damage, um, uh, which probably extends proximally. And then uh, from Dr. Herndon's book, a patient who you know passed out, probably intoxicated near a space heater in the winter. Um, and you can see that extensive tissue damage. Um, it's about the time of year for those to start happening. <clears throat> and now let's kind of transition to pre-hospital care. Um, we rarely have photos of patients who are pre-hospital, so this is a gentleman who's as close to pre-hospital as we can get. And we're just going to talk a little bit about how you should approach this guy. Um, what, what are things that you need to think about, perhaps if you're at the scene? Um, and stopping the burn is, of course, paramount. You want to get the patient away. You want to extinguish the fire. I mean, all of the very obvious things. Um, and then pay some attention to the airway because you can lose it quickly. Um, and then oxygenate. And that's mainly because the patient is around carbon monoxide, hydrogen cyanide. We don't know the chemicals produced by combustion. And 100% oxygen, uh, if you have a non-rebreather, is even better, will decrease the half-life of all of those substances. And then transport. You want to get the patient to 
uh, tertiary care center for evaluation. And more of the same, uh, remove from the source oxygen. Also, you want to pay some attention to getting constricting jewelry or clothes off, perhaps even at the scene, because once you start to give fluids and once the capillary leak starts to happen, the patient will start to get edematous, and a tourniquet-like effect can occur. Um, <clears throat> if you have access to room temperature water, you can apply that to the patient's injury. Whatever your grandmother says, don't put ice on it because you can further perpetuate the epidermal injury. So just room temperature water, rinse it for five to 10 minutes, don't delay transfer, and then just cover it with something clean and dry. Whatever you have, clean and dry, you'll see that uh, kind of repeated over and over. Um, interesting to me, at least, in looking at stuff for this talk, uh, the American Burn Association, of which Dr. Purdue was a president, um, recommends that <clears throat> if you're less than 60 minutes from a hospital, they don't even recommend getting intravenous access. In the state of Maryland, that's not going to happen because we kind of have a, a stay and play mentality. I think, you know, um, we have very advanced practitioners, so they're going to bring you a patient with access. Um, in the severely burned patient, which is usually defined as a TBSA greater than 10 to 20 percent, uh, for an adult, they recommend 500 milliliters of lactated ringers per hour during the initial transport. Again, cover it with something clean and dry. You want to avoid intramuscular injections in favor of intravenous injections because intramuscular injections, the distribution in a burn patient is very unpredictable. Um, <clears throat> and just avoid heat loss as much as possible. And that's where your clean, dry dressings come into place. Uh, you get your patient to the hospital and this is basically just to encourage you to stick with your ABCs of trauma evaluation or any critically ill patient evaluation. Um, special attention on airway to heated gases to which the patient may have been exposed. You want to look for carbonaceous sputum, all the things you hear about. And I would emphasize that it's truly going to be carbonaceous sputum. A singed nasal hair does not necessarily mandate um, intubation. If you're worried about the airway, please, you should proceed with intubation. But I mean, when you are at a burn center, you would be shocked by, you know, a patient has a small focal burn to the forehead and an endotracheal tube because, you know, they had a facial burn. So as a critical care physician, you know, I think you can exercise some judgment. Not everybody with a facial burn needs to be intubated. If you have a concern, you should secure an airway. Um, as far as breathing, if you have a circumferential thoracic burn, you may not see that chest rise. Um, just something to consider. And then if you have extremity burns, a blood pressure may be difficult to obtain. So whether it be intra-arterial access for monitoring of blood pressure or just monitoring of heart rate, monitoring of urine output, um, things can be a little bit <clears throat> altered in the burn patient. This is to you know, show you the flip side of the airway. If you have burns like this, you know, 18 hours later, the patient's going to look a little bit more edematous and a little bit more impressive. You can notice this patient already had a tracheostomy on the left, so already required an emergency airway. But, you know, if this patient comes into your emergency department, do not hesitate to get an airway. Um, and do not hesitate to have surgeons or people who are comfortable with surgical airways close because you know, you put this patient under RSI and you're rapidly going to lose an airway and you could have a pretty dire situation on your hands. 
more of what you're going to be looking for when you assess the patient. Um, you want to examine all extremities for a pulse, especially in circumferential burns. Um, this is the one, except we always tell you that, you know, pulses are the last thing to go in compartment syndrome. Um, in a burn injury, you kind of wait for those pulses to go. And once the pulses are going, then it's time to start thinking about an escherotomy. And we'll get to that in just a second. Um, you want to gently cleanse the wound uh, whenever you're evaluating it. And you want to start thinking about burn size estimation. And that's more important because you're going to be communicating probably with another physician, whether they be somewhere else or not. Uh, regarding transfer. So we'll talk a little bit about burn size estimation and how you do that uh, because if you're calling a burn center it's nice to give them some thought of what they have. Um, these are the ABA's criteria for transfer. I think they're fairly common sense. Um, anything greater than 10 percent. I, I won't read through all of them but again you know this comes down to in my mind the resources that are available at a burn center that maybe even a shock trauma doesn't have, which, you know, breaks our heart sometimes to have to send a burn to Hopkins. Um, but, you know, in reality, we don't have the child life and all the, the support staff that other people do for burn care. This was a patient that broke our heart because we had to send her over to Hopkins Bayview, but I think it was, was a Thursday night or a Friday night, motor vehicle crash, uh, you know, the car ignited, she was in the front seat, severely burned, both lower extremities, eventually ended up losing both of them. Um, hip, uh, she had an ileocecectomy, open abdomen. Um, and this was a patient that we held on to overnight. And, you know, you can see these extensive injuries that eventually caused loss of her extremities. <clears throat> she got scanned. She had a bad pelvic fracture. I want to thank Dr. Fillmore for some of these pictures. I got to take care of her a little bit here. Uh, and then Dr. Fillmore cleaned up everything else at Hopkins Bayview. Um, and this was really what kept her here. She had bilateral grade four uh, internal carotid injuries. So this was the communication between the two centers that I think helped. You know, Dr. Scalia was on the phone talking to them. Are you comfortable with this? Or, so it was, it was my opportunity to be a burn surgeon for about a weekend um, while we dealt with her grade four carotid artery injuries. So, you know, each center has its area of specialization. And then I love this picture, just kind of showing you how complex these patients are. I think this was from you guys. Yeah, once we got her, we're like, oh, great, now what are we going to do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this is a badly injured patient who actually had a very good outcome. Um, and just to show you, you know, use your dry erase board. It's a great way to prioritize. Um, <clears throat> if you are seeing the patient in the emergency department, again, uh, some estimation of burn size is nice for the referring center. Um, the rule of nines is one that... I think you're all familiar with, just to refresh your memory, um, you know, you have 18% anterior, posterior torso, good way to remember it. I also really like the palm rule. Uh, the patient's palm estimates about 1% of their total body surface area. Sometimes I find that easier to use. Uh, kids are not little people. They're, or no, kids are not little adults. Uh, they are little people. Um, they're different. Their heads are bigger than ours, so estimate their size differently. And then if you happen to have one of these in your emergency department, this is uh, the chart that will follow the patient throughout their stay at the burn center. And I'd like to stress it's ever evolving. Uh, Dr. Perdue, who I mentioned earlier, while we were doing the case, would sit in the back and just meticulously mark out this diagram because 
some of the superficial part, partial thickness wounds would convert to full thickness, and it's just it's kind of an ever-changing um, arena. Um, you may have heard of the bow score. This was what I was raised with, especially when you know the 60-year-old guy who was stomping out a burning cow in his field in Texas came in with a 60% burn. You know, they would quote this score, if your total body surface area plus your age is greater than 140, unsurvivable. This is the old days, but still, people are still quoting this. Um, with inhalation injury, there's a modification. But this was <coughs> included in your readings that I think were emailed out to you. I found this paper to be pretty interesting. Kind of refutes everything that, you know, we're taught conventional wisdom. Um, you know, in the current age of critical care, what it is, and just our early surgical debridement of uh, burn injury, uh, it's probably not applicable anymore. Um, this is one of my favorites, Bennett. <laughs> if I have a patient who comes in with burned extremities times four, can I put a burn, could I put an IV line through their uh, burned extremity? Yeah, you can't, I mean, we do it all the time. Um, it, it's just, I, I say this because where I did my fellowship, you know, we occasionally we'd get the burn patient and everybody would just lose it when they came in with two burned antecubital fossas because, oh my God, there's nowhere to put an IV. Yeah, there is. Right through it. I mean, you, you, you can do that. So, that's that. I'm going to talk a little bit about burn resuscitation because I think it's pretty important. I won't beleaguer you with more history, but Dr. Baxter was the burn surgeon at Parkland Hospital who really helped come up with the, the Parkland formula as we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of JFK's uh, assassination. He was one of the men there. There's a quote from him. And Dr. Shires was actually the chairman at the University of Texas Southwestern whenever uh, the president was brought in. He was also instrumental in uh, coming up with the, the Parkland formula, which I would like to stress is just a starting point. but. This is to be used in patients with a total body surface area burn greater than about 20%. That's who's going to get a formal burn resuscitation. If somebody has a 5% total body surface area burn, you don't need to worry about this. Um, but it's 4 mils per keg per percent total body surface area, and that's the total 24-hour requirement. You give the first half over the first eight hours, and you give the second half over the next 16. Um, again. This is just a place to start. Um, you want to avoid over-resuscitating a patient. You want to avoid under-resuscitating a patient. Um, in a burn center, uh, you're looking at hourly urine output, and then you are making your fluid adjustments based on hourly changes. I think the first 24 hours of the care of the burn patient is just one of the more exhilarating patients to take care of because it is. You, every hour, you have to assess where you are. Do you need more fluids? Do you need less fluid? Um, but again, you know, people criticize the Parkland formula all the time. It's just a starting point. Crystalloid, lactated ringers, first 24 hours. There are some debates over whether or not to use colloid or not. I think the standard answer is no colloid in the first 24 hours because of that capillary permeability that we talk about. Um, <clears throat> and this is something that I think everybody should be familiar with, everybody should be able to do because, you know, you don't know where you're going to be if you're out in the community and somebody comes in with a big burn. Uh, something you may need to be familiar with. You're looking for circumferential burns. You're looking for compromised peripheral circulation, whether that be loss of pulses. Um, you know, paresthesias, okay, 
maybe the patient's probably going to be intubated and is not going to be able to tell you much about their paresthesias. Um, and then they talk about tissue pressures. In, in my mind, you know, if, if you have a patient with full thickness burns that are circumferential and you're concerned, you should do an escherotomy. Um, the downside is almost none because if it's truly a full thickness burn, all of that burn is coming off surgically later anyway. So you really can't mess up too badly. Um, these are patients where you should be thinking about performing an escherotomy. You know, classically this lower extremity, it's circumferential. You're going to get subcutaneous edema. Uh, it can't constrict against that burnt escar, so that needs to be released. And then also you can develop basically compartment syndromes of the chest and abdomen too when you, you have these circumferential wounds. Um, an escherotomy is performed at the bedside under sterile conditions. You do not need an operating room. You can do this in an emergency department or in a trauma resuscitation unit or in an ICU. Uh, you do want to prep the patient completely. And you're staying medial and lateral on your extremities. Um, that is always stressed because if you have a patient who's not in anatomic position and you go medial and lateral, you're going to end up barber pulling, which will bring it across the uh, flexure and possibly cause a contracture later. <clears throat> Here, just illustrating again, anatomic position, medial and lateral, uh, a patient on the left getting, who's already had it, I think that's actually our young lady from earlier. Um, this is just one of the patterns that was chosen on this patient on the thorax. Um, again, as you come down with Bovi electrocautery through that eschar, it just releases. And it's, it's one of the more gratifying procedures you can do, I, I think, because you just see instantaneous results. All of a sudden, the guy's oxygenating and ventilating. Um, if you're having a problem, you can then come down anywhere, really, because all of this is going to come off. Again, it's all coming off. Um, there's another patient with the same thing. Um, <clears throat> just a word on abdominal compartment syndromes formed by Escar. Uh, in some series, the mortality of an open abdomen in a big burn is upwards of 80%. So if you can do an escherotomy and get the patient by without a big abdominal decompression, uh, I, I think the patient is better off. After you perform your escherotomy, you need to continue to monitor that extremity because every once in a while you're going to run into the patient who has a reperfusion injury. Um, they'll have continued tissue damage deep. They will develop um, a compartment syndrome, a true compartment syndrome that will require a fasciotomy, which is to be done in the operating room. Um, I have one very distinct memory of a guy who had a persistent metabolic acidosis after his escherotomies. He was a 90 percenter. He ended up with four amputations. Uh, I mean, just because we failed to recognize the fact that he needed fasciotomies. And then I think any talk on burns, we should talk a little bit about the wound antimicrobials. Um, <clears throat> this is kind of the, the big one that I grew up with, silver sulfadiazine. Um, it's reported to be painless. It's white. It's creamy. Uh, this is what we put on all of our acute burns. Um, some people say it causes transient leukopenia. Dr. Purdue always said that was bull crap. He'd never seen it happen ever, um, so I believe him. Um, one thing you may want to avoid, though, is if you're evaluating the patient again in your emergency department with plans to transfer, I don't think it's a bad idea just to clean the wound and then put a clean sheet on it. 
because the second they get to the burn center, they're going to have to get all that off so they can evaluate the wounds. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with a clean, dry sheet. Um, in another one of the papers I sent you, it talks about the military's experience with burn. And I have had zero experience with silver lawn, but I guess this is what the U.S. military uses. Have you guys used it at all? It's apparently great. I mean, I think it's a little bit more expensive than silver sulfadiazine, but it comes in sheets. It doesn't require the constant wiping off and, you know, reapplication. It also comes in these gloves for hand burns that you can just put right on the hand. So this is apparently what the military is using right now. They just will wrap the patient up and get them to definitive care. You'll also hear and probably be tested on sulfamylon. It's broad spectrum. It is reported to penetrate eschar better than silver sulfadiazine. It is reported to be better at pseudomonal and enterococcal coverages. And this is like the classic question. It will cause a metabolic acidosis because it's a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor that always shows up on abside exams, which is our surgery and service exam. Um, and then for face and for graft sites and for healing donor sites, you probably want to use something like bacitracin. Um, the silver sulfadiazine, if you put that on a fresh graft, can actually eat away the fresh graft. Um, I did that my first day back from the lab when I was in the operating room, and I'll never forget it. Um, but yeah, you're supposed to put on the petroleum-based uh, applications. And then let's talk briefly about surgical management, and then we'll wrap it up. Again, the deep burns uh, need to be evaluated by an experienced examiner at a burn center. Um, if they're unlikely to heal within three weeks, those deep partial thickness burns, um, th they're going to need excision and grafting. We typically say within five days. People talk about early excision. Some centers are adamant that you need to go within 24. Some centers push it out to five. I'm not really aware of any data that says one's better than another. Um, but the early excision and grafting, meaning within three to five days, has been shown to reduce the length of stay, reduce infectious complications, and reduce mortality. <clears throat> and it's common sense. Um, leaving dead tissue is going to get infected. That burn tissue is dead. Um, again, the deep partial thickness and full thickness burns need it, and sometime within three to five to seven days. Uh, these are the tools of choice. Uh, this one up top is the Watson blade. That's the one that you use for most uh, big burned areas. It's basically like you're just sequentially excising dead skin. Like in the top right, you kind of see that towards the inferior portion, there's some pink, and you're starting to see a little bit of bleeding through the dermis. That means you're getting down to that viable tissue that may be able to accept a graft. This is a Goulian knife down here on the bottom doing some finer work on the face. Um, but again, the Watson blade was always kind of the, the tool of choice. And this is the tangential excision. Again, I think this guy is the most revealing because you just see this white dermis with this punctate bleeding that indicates that you're ready. Um, again, those are for deep partial thickness. If you're full thickness, you're going to go all the way through the subcutaneous tissues. And this is basically what it looks like. Um, it's, it's pretty... Uh, I would just say, uh, it's 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 tough surgery. I mean, it's it's the room is a hundred degrees. Um, the patient is sick. The patient is bleeding. Um, it's 
it's quite the quite the sight. And this is a patient who's had a full thickness burn, an actual fascial excision all the way down to the fascia. Um, and that's why I stress that, you know, these escharotomies, it doesn't really matter so much what you do. And if, if you think you're going to benefit the patient, that's fine, because they're eventually going to come down to this. If you're not going through healthy skin, uh, you're, you're pretty safe. I think this was one of yours, fascial excision with the grafts applied. Um, I don't enjoy talking about burn nutrition, so I'm going to just kind of highlight a few things. These patients are exceedingly hypercatabolic. Um, part of your initial resuscitation is placing a nasogastric tube and starting enteral feeds within the first eight hours. Um, <laughs> you can see major burn, again, is a great model for hypercatabolic states. Um, there are multiple equations that you can use to calculate floor requirements. Every burn unit that I'm aware of has, again, dedicated nutritionists who are, you know, harping on you within those first eight hours. When are you going to start enteral nutrition? When are you going to start enteral nutrition? Um, we always started early and rarely abandoned it. We kind of believe that it does preserve gut mucosal integrity. Um, it does enhance splank mucus perfusion. And it's been shown to decrease mortality. So really, uh, adequate nutrition fairly rapid, uh, rapidly is, is pretty vital. Um, things that I just think this audience should have pretty firmly entrenched in their brain at the end of this. Um, you know, with burns, again, it's an impressive injury. Stick to your ABCs. If you evaluate all your patients' airway, breathing, circulation, and go from there, uh, you're going to be fine. You want to estimate the injury burden, and that's mainly for communication with outside centers and to determine whether or not your center can take care of it. Um, update their tetanus. Pain control is imperative and probably underappreciated. Um, again, there's a pain specialist pretty much at every burn center saying, you know, let's give more morphine, let's give more, let's give more. Um, you want to clean it, estimate the size. And if you're transferring, go ahead and start your resuscitation. That will require, again, a Foley. Um, you can consider a nasogastric tube, um, and you can consider invasive monitoring if necessary. I'll just briefly go through toxic epidermal necrolysis because I have a few minutes, and I mean briefly. First described by Lyle, um, you know, we really don't understand the pathophysiology, but it seems like in kind of doing a little bit of review for it, uh, keratinocyte apoptosis is the end result. Um, probably a hypersensitive, hypersensitivity reaction. Drugs are pretty much the most important only cause, and it's a 20 to 30 percent mortality. Uh, and we're bringing this up because this is a patient that is typically taken care of at a burn center once this is identified. Um, the typical offenders, antiretrovirals, are a huge offender. Um, and there are a plethora of case reports, especially from like the early 80s um, when case reports were considered acceptable publications. Um, <clears throat> and really, this is just... to. You're going to hear about Lyle syndrome. You're going to hear about Stevens-Johnson syndrome. You're going to hear about erythema multiforme. In my mind, it's all kind of a spectrum of the same thing. And, you know, you can go through the literature and you can find somebody who swears that IgG acts on Ig in some different way in EM versus TENS. And in the way you treat it, at least in my mind, it's, it's all the same. Um, these pictures will look familiar because basically this is a large cutaneous burn. It involves multiple mucosal surfaces. 
um, and it's pretty much treated exactly like a burn in a burn unit um, with discontinuation of the offending or the presumed offending medication. You'll get that positive Nikolsky sign, which if you remember is where you push on the epidermis and it just sloughs, it'll just separate right off. Um, you can get the atypical target lesions. Um, and basically you just have a diffuse burn appearance. Um, everybody needs a severity of illness score. So this is basically the one that has been devised for toxic epidermal necrolysis. Basically, if you're sick, you're not going to do as well. Um, <clears throat> and this is a pretty classic picture in my mind. I swear we had the same patient uh, in residency. So it involves mucous membranes, typically multiple. It'll involve the oral pharynx, the GI tract, uh, the respiratory tract. Um, that mucous membrane involvement can precede the skin lesions. And then ocular lesions are important. There are long-term sequelae, and getting your ophthalmologist involved early is important. Uh, skin biopsy is the diagnostic test of choice. Typically, we'll get derm involved to do this, um, but it is a clinical diagnosis in my mind. And then just to show you the progression of a patient through their course of to toxic epidermal necrolysis. Um, again, it's like a burn. You're losing three to four liters of fluid a day, you're at high risk for infection, hypothermia, altered immune response, and the hypercatabolism uh, that's involved. Uh, send them to a burn center, um, get derm involved, get opto involved, and then really the <coughs> hallmarks of care to dis discontinue that medication, local burn care, and then you're going to find papers about the four things at the bottom. Um, I really don't think there's any definitive data to suggest one over another. You can find pros and cons. Um, I think the, the basic tenets of just good sound burn care are probably the most important factors for the outcome of these patients. And then these are, what is this? Just basically what we just went over. And with that, with 10 minutes left, um, I guess we can stop and take any questions. Dr. Fillmore has just recently completed a burn fellowship, so we have two people here who could potentially answer questions. So uh, thank you very much. It's oh, wonderful. Thanks. Yeah. Um, a few things I was jotting down. Uh, in locations where we may not have a bovie readily available, because I know in a lot of places don't may not have that access in the emergency department. Most would, but mm -hmm. um, so if you need to do an escherotomy and you know prior to transfer, you basically just cut down until you have bleeding, or how do you how would you proceed? In you, uh, I mean, I guess you, you could use a knife. We use a, we use a knife all the time. It's, you can do it right, but shouldn't be using because you're going through necrotic skin, and what you're going to see is. It's, it's beautiful. It just, it pooches. You see this poof of subcutaneous tissue. The edema starts to flow out. You do it along the entire extremity. The pulse comes back. It's great. You just saved an extremity. I mean, it's, it's nice. I can imagine that it could get potentially a little bloody with the knife. Yeah, typically, though, if, if it's getting bloody, either you're going too deep or <coughs> it's really a partial thickness and you might want to reconsider <laughs> Um, and in terms of uh, the 
type of infection, let's say if it's a substance, a, caust a caustic substance causing the burn, does the immediate treatment, you know, the end result, you know, dead tissue, I think probably have a common, you know, basic treatment, but the immediate management of that wound, would that vary if it's acidic, if it's, uh, you know, an alkal, you know, alkaline substance? Yes, and, and, and I mean, I think it centers around removal of the offending agent. I'm blanking, there's one that requires calcium. Yeah, you, uh, can, you can get into to that, but that's controversial as well, because then you talk about it's intradermal or even intraarterial uh, injection. Yeah. Um, and so the most common you know, way of thinking about it is if it's dry, don't wet it. We would take patients to the showers yeah. in the emergency department and just let the water run over them. And of course, this is a stable patient with a fairly limited uh, body surface area involvement. And uh, any any sort of uh, differing points on electrical injuries? Uh, is that is the same sort of principles? Do the same principles apply? Uh, those? The the injury is normally a lot more severe than what you're going to visualize. You may have one or two contact points of visible injury um, with unknown soft tissue damage. Um, in my mind, you wanna consider cardiac injury and cardiac aberrations. Um, you wanna keep your urine output up as you're also examining compartments. You wanna look out for <clears throat> acute renal insufficiency or acute kidney injury. Um, and really, I think the most important thing is just to keep a very close eye on your muscular compartments because of the conduction yeah. and the underlying muscle damage. It's always worse than it looks. Yeah. You watch the cataracts as well. <coughs> um, you know, really often when you decompress with the fasciotomy, in terms of the ICU care days after, I mean, clearly these are really painful injuries, you know, some more n notoriously painful injuries that uh, uh, people encounter. How do you manage the sedation? I mean, do you try to wake them up every day, you know, like most patients, or do you just say, no, we're, we're putting them out until we have whatever findings that indicate that the person could be ready for, you know, spontaneous breathing try, you know, just kind of a, a vent liberation path? I'll say, I'll do my part and then you can do yours. Uh I think it was very different. Um, the daily sedation holiday wasn't there for the patient who had the 80% burn who was still in the midst of getting their operations because, as you mentioned, it's just an unbelievably painful experience. So I think they were kept in, you know, the medically induced coma state for a longer time period because you're not going to extubate them. So the sedation holiday was not deemed um, that important. I don't know if there's any... Twenty-four hours is the classic teaching. Is when the capillary leak starts to resolve, and that's when you start to kind of consider altering your resuscitation strategy. And again, this is classical. I find burns are interesting because it's it's a lot of older data that persists, and it seems like the community of burn surgeons is very slow to change. And I don't know if it's because it's such a small group, um, and there's not a whole lot of new science, I guess, pushing it forward. Um, but, you know, classic teaching is that 24 hours it resolves. 
Um, and that's when centers will start to supplement with colloid resuscitation with the thought that now we have some intravascular volume and everything's not seeping right out and maybe we can start to pull some of that fluid back. Yeah, I think that's spot on. You know, all the research came from the 60s and 70s, um, their animal models that they use, and that's typically when the, you know, the leak ended around the, you know, 20 to 24 hours. So that's why you have the Parkland division the first day, uh, the second 24 hours. Um, so but that, to me, that was one of the reasons why I was attracted to burn. Just as you said, uh, it's time for some new models. It's time for looking at other, you know, alternatives to resuscitation strategies. Uh, and Parkland formula, it's still a great guideline, and that's, that's what it is. Yeah, and, and even in saying that, you know, we are using a lot of old data, I mean, I think that one paper, you know, that we included about the Bow score, I mean, that does show that its survival is increasing. I think, in general, we're doing a good job, but, you know, it's been kind of lactated ringers-based resuscitation for a, a really long time now. And it's very much center-specific, so depending on, you know, where you're, you're at, some places resuscitate at two cc's, you know, per kilogram. Uh, it's kind of a modified Brook formula. Some places uh, internationally use plasma, so Haifa in Israel, for example, they use a plasma-based resuscitation. And um, so there's a dozen or so, you know, acceptable, you know, strategies. What was your resuscitation fluid of choice at Baby? We used, we used LR, uh, but we did early colloids. So if they did not respond, if they were over their estimation in the first 12 hours, we added colloid by albumin, 5%. Um, or if their INR was greater than 1.5, we use plasma. So depending on the, each patient. What additional In a way, question. I, I, yeah, the, the question was basically arrest in a burn patient, what additional complications do you encounter? Um, this is the way I always like to answer questions. It depends. Um, because, yeah, you do have, like, if you have thoracic burns that are, you know, leathery and stuff, yeah, nothing's going to stick to that. So you're not going to get leads to stick to it. If you have a left um, anterolateral thorax, that has a big burn injury on it, the thought of doing um, a resuscitative thoracotomy becomes less appealing. Um, it is tough. Uh, assessing pulses is difficult because the, the tissue is, you can't palpate a pulse through it and you don't know if it's an escherotomy or you don't know what's causing that. So I mean, I guess the answer is it depends. It depends on what else is going on with the patient. I mean. Did you do a fast in this trauma patient and really they're hemorrhaging into their abdomen and that's why they're arresting? So I think that's kind of where it goes back to the, if you stick with your ABCs, um, perhaps you will get to the answer in time. Remember that you always have to go back and say, well, what's the cause? Is this metabolic? Is this restrictive? You have to remember, don't let the burn, you know, phase you. You still treat this patient uh, like we do everyone. We want to know the cause. Certainly we can resuscitate, you can do you know, CPR at the leads, 
um, you know, you could st we staple them on. They, you know, they don't stick, so you just staple them on. They'll, they'll stick if you staple them. Um, and you know, that's that's all. You and can that's really the too. It's if you have the trauma patient. I guess what I was trying to say is, you know, you stick to your in your mind. You have an algorithm for blunt trauma arrest. You know, and it's. Airway, ACLS, breathing, bilateral chest tubes, CPR, and cardiac, you know, it, you have something in your head that you follow, and that's why don't get distracted, like Dr. Fillmore said, don't get distracted by the burn injury. You want to proceed as you would with a resuscitation in any patient. A couple alterations you might consider on a burn arrest is, especially if it's a fire that involved any kind of synthetic yep. material in a house, is you consider cyanide. Yep. And now the cyanic kit as opposed to the old style lily stuff, uh, if you have it, is the way to go because you want to induce the methemoglobinemia. And then uh, if you can, an injurious coaxisymmetry because a lot of these patients will have methemoglobin and then will respond to methylene blue. Um, so that, that's the only option. And we have, what do we have here? We have hydroxocobalamin. That's what it looks like in the true. Um, so that's something you probably give just empirically. Um, so that would be one difference yeah that's a great point having said that though true cyanide toxicity they can survive they die on scene you go through the autopsy reports people who die that's what they die of that's correct you're not all, you're not getting survivors from cyanide survivors toxicity. Yeah, just as you said yeah. the one who codes in front of you and we've you know i have limited experience but probably use a cyanide kit maybe 20 times and every time their cyanide levels they come back delayed so you have to you can send a level, but it's pointless because you have to treat them immediately. And actually, if you're going to treat them, they should be treated at the scene. Um, by the time they get to the hospital, if they're still alive, they don't have cyanide toxicity. Is, is it being used by EMS? Because that seems like that would be a pretty reasonable be. thing just be. to automatically give an inhalational, major inhalational. Because if it's cyanide toxicity and you know, they make it to the hospital, they don't have it. Right. They're going to die before they get to the hospital. Right. Dr. Bruns, thank cool. you very much. It was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Hey, it was yeah, nice to meet you too. Yeah, it was fun.